Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, if you don't, there's one in front of you possibly in the chair, or you can use a digital one on your phone. But either way, go ahead and head on over to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 2, picking up right where Tyler left us off last week. Um, so uh, we're going to be in verse 6 of chapter 2, going all the way to verse 16. And when humans think about uh, religion and, and think about God, they can have a false and flawed view and understanding of what true religion is. They kind of look at it like traveling abroad to a different country. And these countries, you know, have similarities with the Western world, you know, and similarities with your own understandings. Uh, you might not know the language. You might not be fluent on it. Uh, and you, but you can rely on your natural human instincts to help get you by. And we do this with religion, true religion, and we do this with God as well as humans because we live in the world, we have experiences in the world, we've studied the world, we've gained a certain amount of wisdom and interaction in the world, and then we think when we start to engage with God, we can sort of take what we know. Yes, we might be a step or two behind, but we can catch up, we can figure it out as we go because we know our own thoughts, we know our own wills, we know our own desires, and we go, well, if that's what I'm like, then that must be what God is like as well. And what we do when we make this fundamental error is we're projecting who we are unto God, and we're making God in our image rather than realizing that we are made in the image of God. And that's a fundamental difference that we need to understand because when we look at a God that's made in our image, we're saying that we control this God. And that, that's when you get language like, well, a loving God wouldn't do this, and a loving God would let me do that. He wouldn't say no because he wants me to feel good. And we've made God in our image. Not saying you won't feel good when you surrender to God, you will. When you're operating in the image that God has made you in, in his image, and you're living and thriving in that, nothing can steal your joy. But when you live in the wisdom of the world, when you live in, with a God in your image, a small God in a box, everything can steal your joy. Everything can rob of feeling the bliss that is found in Jesus Christ. So when we come to scriptures, the scripture tells us that God is very much unlike us. That God is transcendent. That God is, in Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. There is no one like God. In fact, you might know this about the name Michael, but the, Mike, the name Michael is a Hebrew name, and it, 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 a, it has a question of who is like God. And it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no one. No one is like our God. So to experience God, to engage with God, is something more like going to a completely foreign country that has no similarities to you at all. You can't make out social expressions. You have no similarity in English, uh, with the English language. You know, like if you know French, you might be able to get a little bit by with Spanish, not, not that well, but you can figure some things out. But the written language, even in this culture, uses symbols rather than alphabet. And, and you're not used to this, and you're completely lost in the culture. Culture. You're entirely in the dark, and you're entirely dependent upon a translator who reveals to you what is happening behind the curtain of the language barrier that we speak. And if we're going to know anything about God, we also need to be relied upon the translator. He has to reveal us to us his wisdom in a form and fashion 
that we understand. And the big idea for today's sermon boils down to this. That uh, God sends his Holy Spirit to reveal his hidden wisdom in Christ. So whatever is hidden in God, whatever is secret in God, whatever is inaccessible to us in God, he reveals it to us and he does so in two ways. He does so through the obvious way, through his son, Jesus. And then the second way is by sending the Holy Spirit to help us see that all we have is in Christ. And so we are going to see this in three points today. We're going to see in that the Father has concealed Christ in a mystery. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our sermon, okay? So if you go, wow, he's still on point one, point two, and three are very quick, okay? So before you start running, this is going to be the bulk of the sermon. Part two, the Holy Spirit revealed Christ through through preaching. And then thirdly, it is that we receive Christ by the Holy Spirit Alone. So let's start with the first one, which is the Father concealed Christ in a mystery. And we're going to start by looking at the first four verses, six or uh, the first few verses, six to nine. But before we read those verses, I just want to give you a little context from our previous sermon that Tyler preached so well last week. So Paul in Tyler's sermon is coming hard against the idea of wisdom. Right? For example, look at 1 Corinthians 2.1, which says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech. So what Paul wants to make sure is that in his opposing of wisdom this way, he takes a very strong stance against wisdom. He doesn't want people to get the wrong idea that Paul is opposed to all wisdom because he's not. Paul is opposed to this human conception of wisdom. This human idea and understanding of wisdom, Paul is saying that's false. And you can't simply reason up to God with your own human heart and mind and imagination. You can't get to the truth of God that way. Instead, the wisdom of God is something that has to be revealed to you. It has to be opened up to you, to your eyes, or you won't get it at all. You might understand bits and parts of it, but without the Spirit, you won't understand it at all. So with that, let's jump right into our verses today, which says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, because what does he say about the rulers of the age? They're doomed to pass away. So Paul said, excuse me, Paul says the wisdom that he wants to reject, he wants to get rid of, to distance himself from, is the wisdom of this age. So he's not saying, hey, hey, I don't like wisdom, just act stupid. Like, you know, don't take any counsel. He's he's not saying he doesn't like wisdom. He does impart wisdom, but he's imparting a specific wisdom. It's God's wisdom, but he's against the wisdom of this age, which might make you ask the question, well, when is this age? And essentially, without getting into all the semantics, we can go on a, a long bunny trail here, but essentially what he's talking about is the entirety of human history, beginning with the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.6. In that scenario, we see humanity for the first time relying upon its own wisdom by listening to a lie. They rejected God's wisdom, right? God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what do we see in Genesis 3.4-6? Uh, We see Eve looking upon that tree. She sees that the fruit is to be desired to make one wise. And she rejects God's wisdom. 
She rejects God's knowledge, and instead she leaned upon her own human reasoning and wisdom and ate some of the fruit. And don't worry, she didn't force it down Adam's throat. He was standing there waiting with her, being a bad husband and allowing it to happen, and he ate a well along with her. From that point on, all the way to the end of time is this age. That's what Paul is talking about. It's the age that is marked and characterized by the rejection of God's wisdom. And it's a fundamental turning away from God's wisdom to a human wisdom that is entirely and fundamentally and completely unlike God. Who is like God, church? No one. Which is why you can't rely on the wisdom of this age. So instead, he says in verse 7, we have to have a different wisdom. We need that wisdom that sustains us when we get these bad phone calls, when we get these bad reports, when we're faced with the challenges of life, when, when it seems like you're going well and then life just takes a hard left on you. What wisdom are you standing on? I hope it's the wisdom that he's talking about in verse 7, which says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So literally what he says here is, but we speak or impart God's wisdom in a mystery. Now we have to be careful about the word mystery because when I say the word mystery, we, we are all probably thinking about like Scooby-Doo or Sherlock Holmes, right? Like Sherlock Holmes can walk into a crime scene, he, scene, he sees a footprint, he knows, hey, that cobbler down the street makes that type of shoe. I'm going to follow up there. He finds ashes from certain cigarettes that he knows how, who's smoking what and he's deducing and figuring out the crime, and to solve who committed it. But that's not what we are talking about when we're talking about a mystery in the biblical sense. What we're talking about in a biblical sense is something that you can't look around, you can't look with inside, you can't look anywhere else and deduce your way up to God. You just won't. It doesn't work that way. When we are talking about a biblical mystery, it's more like if I said I'm holding up a certain number of fingers behind my back. And you have two guesses. And it can be anywhere between zero and affinity. I don't have that many fingers, by the way. I'm not a son of Anik. Uh, come on, my Bible nerds. Okay, anyways. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, anywhere between zero and affinity. And you'll just never get that. It would be impossible unless I revealed to you the answer, which was two, by the way. So if you guessed that, good job. You were right. So what Paul says is this wisdom of God is in this mystery. It's shrouded. It's, 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 uh, we have blinders on in a sense. We can't see it, and it has to be revealed to us, or we will never understand it. And what he goes on to say is that this wisdom of God is not only something that God has hidden in a mystery, but it's something that God has decreed before the ages. Now get that. Notice in verse 6, he said, the, not this wisdom of this age, singular, but he says the wisdom of God is hidden in a mystery. This wisdom was decreed before the ages, plural. In other words, the entirety of human history, yes, but also the entirety of time before the foundations of the earth were laid, God was decreeing. And the word decreeing is literally the word predestined. God was deciding, he was choosing, he was determining from eternity past a plan, a great plan. The wisdom that we're talking about is referring to God's plan. And what God is talking about here is what theologians have long called the covenant of redemption. 
that in eternity past, before creation began, God had decided, he determined, he ordained, he decreed, he predestined the way in which that he would save sinners like you and me. How he would save us. His plan of redemption. And by the way, the cross wasn't plan B. That was plan A. It was plan A. There is no plan B with the Lord. And the plan of God was that God the Father would conceal God the Son hidden in a mystery until the fullness of time. And then when it came to the right time, God would send the Son into the world. He would become incarnate. He would take on flesh, a human nature. This is what we talk about a lot around Christmas time. And he would take upon himself a human nature. And then by this human nature, he would be like us in every way, every respect, except without sin. And that in this human nature, he would do a lot of things. He would teach, he would preach, he would heal, he would be a servant, he would obey God in a way that was completely and totally in accordance with the law. And so that son, Jesus, would obey all the way to death, even death upon a cross. But the word, sorry, but the world, instead of recognizing that Jesus was the Lord of glory, we see in verse 8 that none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This was the Lord of glory in the flesh. Yet they despised him, they rejected him, they turned against him because they were relying upon their own human uh, intu uh, intuition, their own wisdom, and they looked upon God's wisdom and said, yeah, I don't want that. That's, that doesn't make sense. I can't trust that. It doesn't fit into my paradigm of how I view God. And, I want, and, and they wanted to reason up to God and create a God in their own image. That would come as a ruler, that would come as a, a savior from the Romans, that would come as a military leader who would be prestigious and full of money. They confused the prophecies, and they read it through their own lens, and they missed the Messiah. And the plan was that God, the son's body, the human nature part of God, that he took on at the incarnation, that death would hold sway over that body for three days until that day when Jesus, the third day, when he rose up from the dead in resurrection life, and then 40 days after that, when he would ascend to the right hand of the Father in heaven where he remains today, where he is building his future kingdom by the outpouring of his spirit. When he saves you, he is building a kingdom that is coming. And we are part of it. We are ambassadors of it. Just like if I was an ambassador of Canada and I moved across the world, I'm not living in Canada right now, but I'm representing Canada. And when people come in contact with me as an ambassador, they should be coming in contact with the values of Canada that I'm representing. And in the same way, God is pouring his spirit into us as preparing for a future kingdom that we are already ambassadors of. And that when people come in contact with you, Christian, they should be coming in contact with the values of the kingdom. Not with the values of the world. That's what we should be promoting. He is building his future kingdom. He is building his church until the end, when Jesus Christ will return as the ruler of heaven, as the ruler of earth, as the righteous judge of all the earth, who will judge the rulers of this age. And Paul says, it's not looking good for those guys. They're doomed to pass away. 
But God will bring his people, you who are in Christ, into his glory. This is something that God has decreed before the ages for his glory. His plan, this covenant of redemption that God has determined and he bound himself to in eternity past is also for our glory. Not in a puffed up, conceited way. That's not what Paul is talking about. But in a way that drives us to worship. That we get to glorified bodies in the end. For the glory of all those who look to Christ in faith and suffered and died. Or maybe didn't suffer and die for his name, but just lived for Christ in their context and died as a faithful servant. For the glory of all the men and women who have gone before us and for those who are here today. It's a remarkable wisdom that has been revealed to us. It was hidden for a time, but now it has been revealed in Christ. But that doesn't mean that it just appeared out of nowhere. There was timbits and hints and clues all throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of these clues. But even with these clues and hints, humans could never take those and deduce their way and understand what God was really going to do. That the Son of God would die for me and you sinners? Really? Who would have thought? And that's what verse 9 is getting at when he says, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now this is a little bit of a tricky passage because when you're reading uh, the New Testament, it says, For it is written, or as it is written, or whatever, something along those lines. They're quoting the Old Testament because those are the scriptures they had at this time. But here, Paul is not quoting a specific Old Testament passage. Most scholars argue that he's actually summarizing the entirety of the Old Testament canon. He is saying, in the past, in the Old Covenant, before the fullness of time, when Jesus Christ came to the world, God dropped all these little clues around. He was saying, he was was doing this in promises, in the prophecies, in the sacrificial system that was set up in Leviticus. He was doing this through the kings and the prophets and the priests. These were all foreshadows and types in advance of who Jesus Christ would be. They were declaring the person and work of Jesus Christ who would come. And they were showing us fundamentally that the one who would come is going to be perfect. David's amazing, he's cool, he's great, but he was a sinner, he was an adulterer, and he was a murderer. But the one who's coming, he's going to be perfect. You're not a David, you're not a Daniel, don't ever compare yourself to those guys. Because they're meant to show you that Jesus is greater. That the one who is coming is greater. And this, that's the plan. That's the wisdom of God. Christ and him crucified, and yet the whole world didn't figure this out until it was revealed, until Christ was on the scene. And even then, they didn't get it. Their eyes didn't see it. Their ears didn't hear it. Their hearts didn't imagine what the Lord of glory could do. And so they crucified him. They nailed him to a cross. Yet that was also according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God as well. They played right into his plan of redemption so that in crucifying the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ would bleed out his blood so he could atone for the sins of all those who believe in him by faith. And so the Old Testament summary here that Paul writes says that throughout the Old Testament, God has been saying, listen, people, listen. I have a plan. I have a purpose. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm bringing you. I am preparing you for something that I have accomplished and that I have planned before the foundations of the world were laid. 
And now I'm working all of this out in human history to the time when Christ would come and that I prepared for you that my son would be crucified for you. That's what no eye saw. That's what no ear heard. That's what no heart of man imagined, that God was preparing these things for those who loved him. And we apply this passage very simply. We apply this part, the part of the hidden mystery, by marveling. It's simple. We marvel, we worship God for what he has done. Do you know the privilege that you and I have being able to see the plans of God unfolded? Do you know the privilege? Do you know that believers in the Old Testament longed for, hoped for, inquired into understanding this plan, and yet it was veiled to their eyes? They only saw glimpses. This is what Peter wrote about in 1 Peter 10 to 12, which says, concerning this salvation, sorry, I didn't bold those words, uh, the prophet who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what the person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So it wasn't just the Old Testament believers, the angels of God himself in the very throne room of God longed to see and understand this plan. This church is the height of God's wisdom, this plan of redemption, and they wanted to know this, they wanted to know what God was up to, yet it was hidden, and it was veiled, and it was concealed until the fullness of time, until the solution to the answer, and the fullness of God's redemptive power, and the person and work of Jesus Christ could come into the world and execute the plan. Do you know what privilege it is to hear this plan today, and every day? Teens sitting up there in the balcony, do you know what privilege it is to grow up in a Christian home, to hear these mysteries preached to you and taught to you, these plans that were laid out before the foundation of the world that God was at work to save your soul. Do you know the privilege it is to be raised in a home of faith? Church, do you understand all of this and, and marvel at this, that what God has been doing? Do you read through the Old Testament and say, my goodness, what have God been doing? This is extraordinary. I could never have thought of this. Does seeing God's plan reveal and move you to agony and anguish over your willingness to sin? Christ so willingly went to the cross in this plan, and we so willingly go back to our sin. Does knowing this plan move you to a state of awe? in worship of your king of kings. When the prophet Isaiah was brought into the throne room of God, he had a vision of the king. He declared, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live with a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And yet Isaiah was one of those prophets who longed for, searched for, to see, but yet was veiled. He did not have the fullness of the revelation, even standing in the very throne room of God. You see, church, you have a better vision. A lot of us, we read the Old Testament and go, wouldn't it be cool to see God do all these things? I would believe so much better. No, you wouldn't. You have a better vision. It has been revealed to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. He's tabernacling inside of you. 
Only the high priest could go in the presence of the Lord, but you have him living in you. How does that change who you are? How does that change how you pray? How does that change how you treat your wife? How does that change how you treat your husband and your kids? How does that change how you treat the person sitting next to you in this church? That the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. And he has revealed this plan to you. This should move us to worship. This should move us to agony over how easy it is for us to desert the Lord and run to sin for our satisfaction. When we look to what God has provided to us in Christ, the salvation of our souls for all those who look to Jesus in faith. The whole plan of God from before the foundations of the world were laid is that God the Son would pour out his blood for you. And that should move you to worship. The Lord of glory would be crucified for you for all those who look to him in faith. It's an extraordinary wisdom. And Paul told us something remarkable in these first four verses, that the Father concealed Christ in a mystery, but now he moves to the second section, which is the Holy Spirit reveals Christ through preaching. That Old Testament quote that we looked at that was kind of tough that we wrestled with in verse 9 is, is kind of an incomplete sentence when you look at it on its own because it's meant to flow right into verse 10 which says, But it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So God unveiled the veiled hidden counsels of God in eternity past, and he does this unveiling, Paul says, through the Spirit. So you might be thinking, well, who's the Spirit? And what gives him the authority to reveal these things? Well, just like when you travel to a foreign country, you need an interpreter to put you past the, the, the curtain of language barrier. And the Holy Spirit, if you will, is sort of the authoritative interpreter of the things of God so that we can grasp the things of God and communicate with God through these mysteries. Just look back at verse 10 for a moment. It says that for the Spirit searches everything. That word searches everything is an investigative process that the Spirit has so uh, thoroughly searched the deep things of God and he has come to know inside and out the depths of God and what it means is that first and foremost that the Spirit is a person. Because to do investigative work, you have to be a person. This Holy Spirit's not a thing. The Holy Spirit's not an it because things and its don't do anything. They're inanimate. But we see this Holy Spirit is searching. He's investigating but this also means that the Spirit is God. Because only God can know the deep things of God. No creature could know the deep things of God because they're hidden and concealed. That's what Paul is saying when he goes into verse 11. He says this. He says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. See the connection? The point Paul is making here is simple. Right, I might watch what you do from afar and go, oh, wow, Vicky, you're so nice for doing that. But what I don't know, Vicky's actually being, you know, a jerk. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but she's being malicious. She's trying to deceive, manipulate someone. She's just kind of putting on a nice smile. No, Vicky's wonderful. I'm just kidding. And, 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 and someone might smile at me and I might go, wow, that person's really nice. And I don't know the difference. And I walk right into their trap. That might be the case. But also, it could be the flip side. I could look at someone and go, whoa, what a jerk. 
that person's really rude. Why would they do that? And I'm totally missing their true motives. Because in reality, you may be trying to do something really nice, and I'm just not smart enough to realize it. I don't know your thoughts. That's what it comes down to. And you don't know my thoughts, but you know your own thoughts. And the spirit that lives inside of you knows your thoughts. You can't trick yourself about what you're thinking and why you're doing something. You know your motives. You know the motives of your heart. And what Paul is saying here is that the spirit of God is the spirit of God. It's the spirit of God, meaning that the spirit is within God, that the spirit of the Father and the Son, the spirit is the authoritative translator who brings to bear and declares to us the hidden wisdoms of God. So in verse 12, Paul says, Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So the Spirit has done all this investigative work, and he says, hey, you don't have to do that work. Here it all is. I'm going to reveal it to you. I live inside of you, and I'm going to teach it to you. He reveals it to us. And, and Paul says the Spirit does this through preaching. He says, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So what are these spiritual words? What is he talking about? Well, if you remember back to Tyler's great message last week, we learned that Paul here, it's the same vein of thought, is talking about preaching. That's what the previous passages were talking about. And it's really important that we understand what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about the preaching that he does, and this argument is actually started back in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 21, when he says, for, in, uh, for since in this wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Or literally, the folly of preaching. Or in other words, per, uh, uh, particularly the message we preach and particularly the method in which we preach it. Because preaching is foolishness in the way that it comes about. Paul even said that, if you remember back to verses 3 and 5 of chapter 2, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the spirit and power of God, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The spiritual words that Paul is talking about, the words that are taught to us by the spirit in, thir in verse 13, is preaching. The plain, weak, trembling, foolish proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So how do we apply this? Well, it's very simple. Pay attention to preaching. I'm not saying just my preaching. I'm just saying pay attention to preaching. Because preaching is not a TED Talk. I'm not standing up here trying to make you all feel goosebumps and whatnot and give you some information that's not clearly laid out for you in Scripture. Preaching is a unique method that God has commanded as part of the councils that were appointed in eternity past about how God is going to make his plan known to the world. How is, Paul, how is God going to make his plan known to the world? Through preaching. Sure, you can listen to your fun preachers out there who give you all these fun little background facts and whatnot, and oh, that's so good. That doesn't change you. We need the plain, simple preaching of God's word. The, the background stuff is good. Don't hear me wrong. We need that for things. But when sermons are just filled with little timbits here and there of, oh, what about this? What about that? What about this? But they're not telling you your hope is alone in Christ. How does this passage point me to Jesus? That's what's important. 
through the plain, simple preaching of the word. Look, I know the world you live in, because I live in it too. And the pressure upon preachers is to make things snappy and fun and engaging, because we live in a world that is drowning in content. We have radio, newspaper, podcasts, social media, TV, etc., etc. The very fact that you sit here and listen to me blows my mind. Because there's way better preachers out there than me that you can access on your phone if you want. There's so much available to us, and we live in a miraculous age of information and technology, and we're drowning in content, and yet that content is not the content that can save you. When you hear a man preaching to you in plain words, like I am, we're not doing anything magical up here. I'm not saying, okay, Tyler, drop the, the dust at the, you know, uh, tw- 10 minutes so people think the Holy Spirit showed up. Right? We're, we're simply declaring to you Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if he does amazing things like that, so be it. But we don't have to manipulate it. All we have to do is expose the text of God. But preaching is not just effective because I'm uh, exposing the scriptures to you. It's effective because the Holy Spirit has decided that he's going to use preaching and come along preaching and apply it to you in a new way. That's why I'm at the church hours before everyone shows up on a Sunday morning. Every single Sunday morning, I'm here whether I get good sleep or not, hours before, praying that God would move today. Praying that God would take my simple, dumb words and breathe life into them. Because I don't just want to get up here and entertain you. I don't have any interest in doing that. I want to see the Holy Spirit applying the wisdom of God to your hearts. Because that is where transformation happens. When God takes the preaching of a simple man, the proclamation of the gospel, and confirms the truthfulness of it, confirms the reality of it to your heart. So that you will believe. Not because how good of the preacher is, who cares? but because of the demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit reveals Christ through preaching. I could stand up here. I can't do it because I'm too passionate and just read monotone to you. You'd all leave and go to a different church. But God could still change your heart through the monotone preaching of his word because it's not about entertainment. It's about the Spirit of God, which leads me to the third point, which is we receive Christ by the Holy Spirit alone. And this is the final point. In verse 14 to 16, Paul takes this further of what we were just talking about. He says the Holy Spirit reveals Christ through preaching, and you can't find Christ through any other way. There is no podcast you're going to find this in. There's no Netflix series you're going to get this from. You get this through the Holy Spirit alone, or you get this nowhere. 1 Corinthians 14 to 16 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. So the basic point in verses 14 is the ability to discern spiritual things. It's kind of like a sixth sense, like a spidey sense for Christians, right? It just comes to us with the Holy Spirit. We are given the Holy Spirit, and because of that, we are given the ability to discern things spiritually. We are ability to look at the spiritual things of God and grapple with them and understand them. But without this spiritual sense, per se, all of this would still be veiled to us. Even if someone preached to you plainly in your language, you won't hear it. You won't hear it in a way that will drive you to your knees, seeking after God for the salvation that he's offered to you through Jesus Christ. As one commentator puts it, it would be like asking a deaf man what he thinks of Mozart's music, or asking a blind man what he thinks of Monet's paintings. They don't have the capabilities to discern that, to judge that. And the same is true about those who don't have the Spirit. But Paul says, in Christ, Christian, you have these capabilities. In verse 15, Paul says, your senses aren't limited anymore. You are able to discern these things spiritually. In verse 16, we're told that we have the infinite privilege of being given the mind of Christ that is part of the gospel plan from the foundations of the earth. So we apply this in two ways. Number one, the, this passage gives us a critical understanding of when we, talk to pe- when we talk to people who don't believe in Jesus. To those who don't believe in Jesus, it's not because those people are lacking in wisdom. It's not because some of them, uh, no, sorry, some of them are the most sophisticated people in the world. It's not uh, necessarily because they're not good in a human sense of the word good. It's, it's because, it's not because they are less sensitive to the spirit than you are or I, I am. It's completely because the Holy Spirit hasn't yet given them the sense to discern this. So what do we do with that? It means when we interact with people who don't know Jesus, it means we better be patient. We better be long-suffering and gentle. Not saying you don't wait like seven years to finally share the gospel, and that's ludicrous, but that you're patient in your sharing. As you're sharing it, you don't go, wow, how do you not understand this? Be patient with them. We have to recognize that they just aren't going to get it. It's like when Levi was a newborn. As much as I told him, man, 3 a.m. is not a convenient time for you to cry. He just didn't have the capabilities to understand that until he grew. He just kept on screaming. And it's the same thing is true that for those without the Spirit, they don't have the capabilities to give it. So be patient and watch how God will do a great work. But here's the other thing. It means that we as a church, corporately, have to have a faithful, long-term strategy for trying to share the gospel with people. Faithful and long-term and regularly. We We have to regularly be declaring this to people who don't yet know Jesus. Pray how is God leading you to be faithful in your evangelistic witness. We are all called to this. Not just the ones standing up here preaching. Not just the ones who are gifted in certain ways. We need 100% of the people participating in this and participating in prayer. Asking how God would use them to serve faithfully to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who know it. You might be gifted in declaring it a different way than I am. Through hospitality, through things like that. And I might be gifted in different capacities, but we all are called to proclaim the gospel message with our voice and with our lives. This is why I can't emphasize prayer enough. All of this is a miracle. People always ask me, miracles still happening today? Well, are you saved? Are you? If you are, that's a miracle. Because it's a miracle that I'm saved. That a dead man became alive. 
It's a miracle. And all of this is in the Spirit of God working in us in a way that we can't understand. Do you come to Sunday morning sermons praying that God will open your eyes? Eyes. There we go. (laughs) Don't have me teach your kids. Open your eyes and your ears and your heart. Pray for this. This is what Dean and I meet every Monday or Sunday morning and pray about. That God would open our hearts and our eyes together as a church. Do you pray for others to see this, to hear this? And not in the way of like, oh, I hope so-and-so is listening to this message because she needs it. Uh, but in a way that it truly transforms us and we understand it. We want to be a church that is gathered in prayer. Which is why you should come April 30th in the evening to our prayer and worship night. Because we're going to cry out to the living God as a church, asking for him to do in our church what we, humanly speaking, cannot do. And that's to reach the town of Drumheller with the gospel. Amen? Amen. Be seeking. Be praying, church. Be asking the Spirit of God to do the work in this church and in this community that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had planned and ordained from before the foundations of the world. Amen? Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your wisdom. We thank you, O oh Lord, that we are, you've given us smarts and you have given us the ability to figure things out with our own human knowledge. But Lord, may we not rely on our own understandings. But Father, would we submit our understandings to the wisdom of God, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's hard. And Lord, as we grapple with us understanding your wisdom, may it produce in us a patience, but also a fervency to share this wisdom with the world, with our neighbors, with our sisters, with our brothers, with our kids. Father, put that urgency in our heart, but give it, couple it with grace, Lord, that we'd be graceful in our presentation, that we'd be gentle in our presentation, that we'd be loving in our presentation, that we wouldn't have to go and use eloquent speech and all these fancy little uh, nuanced things, Lord, but we would keep it simple and plain and preach the gospel message to a dying world. Use our church, God. We're ready and we're willing. Send us in Jesus' name. Amen.